Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Films, football, beer, and above all gambling filled up the horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. So said George Orwell in his dystopian masterpiece 1984. Football, or soccer, to our American listeners, for so long seen as the sport of the proles, has emerged as the single strongest element of modern-day popular culture, breaking out from its working-class stronghold and capturing the imagination of men and women of all ages and all classes. How did this happen, and what does it mean that we have replaced nearly all forms of combat with the spectacle of 22 men kicking a ball around? With me is uh, Dominic Sandbrook, keen football fan. Hello, Tom. Responded in your, your, your Wolves shirt. Yeah, um, all gold. Big Wolves fan. Um, uh, one of the founding uh, one of the founding clubs of the English Football League, of course, and uh, in the Premiership. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm a big um, Villa fan, uh, also <laughs> one of the 12 founding clubs of the English Football League uh, and in the Premiership. Um, and joining us is Jonathan Wilson, who is a Sunderland supporter. Jonathan, um, Sunderland's neither of those two things, is it? Well, we call it the Premier League now, Tom, as I'm, as I'm sure yeah. you're aware. Um, and actually, you touch on a, on a very, I think immediately you hit upon a, a critical point, which is, was the English League as founded in 1888 really a national league when certain teams were banned from entering for being too far away? Can we really count Preston's two titles in, in those first two seasons as genuine league titles when essentially it was a Lancaster or the Lancashire um, West Midlands combination a regional league Sunderland of course in right. their first season in the league did exceptionally well and went on to win it three times in the first five this seasons this is precisely the way I knew he would behave don't get me started on the 1913 FA Cup final because we know how Villa cheated there yeah and so immediately I've given the ball away uh, Wilson has broken and has scored already um, I mean, the 1913 and, and, FA Cup final Jonathan. between Villa and Sunderland was so controversial Jonathan they couldn't Jonathan. even play the charity shield the following August because Sunderland refused to take part because they're so outraged. And I, I, I hope you feel uh, the requisite shame for that, Tom. Tom never feels any shame. I can assure you of that. <laughs> so, so, so those listeners um, who, who are not familiar with Jonathan's incredible work um, on multiple football and sporting podcasts um, in the media, author of a range of fantastic books on football. Um, Jonathan, um, I wanted to ask you for those who, who 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 aren't familiar with your work and who may not even like football. Is it is is football a worthwhile object of study for historians? And I'm going to I'm going to give you um, a, a quote from um, the great historian Robert Coles, whose book The Sporting Life came out last year, and I, I read a couple of weeks ago. Excellent, fantastic, book. excellent book. And he, and he says about sport generally, but this would work very well for football. I think it is a major subject, not in itself, perhaps, but in the way it is woven into almost everything else we do. And he, he talks of sport and again, by extension, football, one of England's great civil cultures. So um, this is obviously a history podcast, not a sport podcast. How would you convince people who, who know nothing about football, who might be sceptical about having this as a subject for a podcast, that it's, it's worthwhile for historians to look at? 
I mean, so on the one hand, football is entirely trivial. You know, I, I recognise that the the details of who won what when and who scored which goals when is largely irrelevant. But I mean, David Goldblatt in his book The Age of Football, which came out what, two years ago, he makes the point that football now is the most universal cultural mode there has ever been. It is everywhere in the world. You can, I mean, I remember I was in Ethiopia in 2015 in, in Lalabella, and I was there to see the rock churches. And on the Saturday afternoon, at lunchtime, I was I was in a restaurant and said, I, I'd quite want to watch uh, Chelsea v Liverpool today. Uh, where can I do it? And the restaurant manager said, oh, well, I'm knocking off. Uh, come with me. And we went to this cafe. There's about 200 people in this cafe watching the TV. And then he said, well, if you want the real experience, we should go to one of the video halls. So we went then to watch Swansea v Arsenal. And there was just a, a big screen at the, at the front of this. I don't, I don't even know what you call it. It's like a muddy bank with seats hammered into the bank. I would say probably 500 people in there. There was um, sort of tarpaulin over the top. You had to pay five beer or whatever to get in, you know, a, a notional fee. Uh, to, well, to me, I guess locals, it probably was quite significant. And um, it, this was one of three of these halls in this just kind of quite small village. And there was all these cafes. So I worked out that 20% of the male population, of the adult male population, of this this village in Ethiopia were watching the Premier League on any given Saturday afternoon. So this is something that takes up a huge amount of the emotional intellectual space of a huge number of people. And that then, I think, has two interesting uh, consequences. So one is the very direct consequence of how politicians try to use football as a tool of propaganda. And the other is the, the point that Galliano makes, Eduardo Galliano, the Uruguayan poet, politician, theorist, who, as you know, Tom, I have severe doubts about. But the point he makes that uh, show me how you play and I'll tell you who you are, I think is very significant. That the way a culture's teams, the way a culture plays football, I think can tell you quite a lot about that culture, particularly when it's self-conscious, as it is in the case of, say, Argentina. If I can just jump in, um, thinking about it from a historian's point of view, I mean, Tom, when you write about the Romans... It would be weird for you not to mention gladiatorial games or chariot racing or or yeah. any of the, the the sort of the the hobbies and the, the the things that fascinated ordinary Romans. And for me, writing about post-war Britain, I mean, most people at any given moment cared didn't give a damn about the social contract or the you know um, the details of Harold Wilson's plan to revive the economy or indeed Margaret Thatcher's monetarist policies. The way they understood and structured their lives was about obviously about personal a personal narrative, but it's often about a narrative. That's not about political events. It's about sporting events or, or cultural yeah. events, you know, music. And, and to not take people's lives in their own terms and, and, and understand what matters to them, I think is actually to miss what life was yeah. about. But to, to put that, to, to ask Jonathan, I mean, so, so the Romans, they have their gladiatorial sports. Um, you know, the Greeks have their athletics. The uh, peoples of Mesoamerica have, the, have their ball games. Um, but football is coming out of a, a presumably a specific cultural context, a, a national context. It, it, it does presumably matter that it emerges specifically from England. I mean, that, it, or could it just have emerged from anywhere? I mean, there was what, Jonathan, wasn't the thing that um, FIFA said that actually its origins lay in China or something? Well, have I misremembered that? They ha I remember them saying that. I remember Seth Blatter making that point very explicitly. Sorry, go ahead, Trof. Well, I mean, of course, Sepp Blatter would say whatever. Sepp Blatter is a former president of, of FIFA, uh, which is the governing body of the sport. He would say whatever was useful to him politically at the time. I mean, <laughs> Sepp Blatter saying something is 
is is almost certainly guaranteed it's not true rather than the reverse. <laughs> but I mean, what, so it's what, not true. Well, no, China what, didn't invent football. No. What, what what is clearly true is that lots of different cultures uh, practice ball sports. So we we have I think it's five thousand years ago in China, which it, which does appear to be the earliest evidence we find. But there's also stories of. I mean, I remember going to the Roman fort in South Shields to Abea as a kid and being told that Roman soldiers there would kick around the heads of their enemies uh, who they decapitated in battle. Um, I think in Columbus's logs, you know, he, he notes when he, he gets to the Caribbean islands, he sees uh, islanders uh, playing a game with, with a rubber ball. So clearly ball sports have existed in many different cultures and many different forms. Football, as we know it today, very clearly comes from a series of meetings held at Freemasons Tavern near Covent Garden in London in late 1863, uh, which were an attempt by um, representatives of teams who, who would come out of the schools and universities to try and get one game. But each school, each university had its own form of football and they wanted a unified set of laws so that you know, when you came from your school, you got to university, you didn't have these long arguments about what football was. You had a set of laws you could play by. These schools are public schools. Well, as I was going to say, that's the fascination, isn't it? That from the start, you have this tension between the so-called working man's game and the elite, you know, public school origins of the codified game. Don't, don't you think that tension's always been there? Yeah, that tension has absolutely always been there because the people who are, who are setting those laws are, as you say, they're, they're, they're from the public schools. Uh, whereas the first club founded is in Sheffield, um, you know, it'd been founded a few years earlier, um, and and that was a you know working a working class club, a working you know working man's club. So yeah, that, that tension has always been there, and of course this is why you get the huge arguments over over professionalism, which eventually is legalised in eighteen eighty five. So Jonathan, the key thing really is is about laws, because presumably also you have these um, these kind of ancient traditions that go back to the Middle Ages of towns just kind of kicking pigs bladders through the streets or whatever and that's kind of organized chaos really there aren't rules i mean that's the that, that's the rule there are no rules whereas in the 19th century it's not just football it's cricket rugby tennis or you know all these sports it's the codification that really makes them what they become yeah and the, the victorians clearly had this great gift for, for codification and, and so you know in any meaningful sense modern football comes from these meetings in 1863 and if you look at the 12 laws they, they draw up. They're remarkably similar to what we have today. I mean, there's been a, a series of changes, particularly recently. Um, but but essentially, those laws are recognisable as football as it is today. Now, I, I think this, the, this, is, yeah, this is another uh, interesting avenue of um, what, what are these games that the schools are playing? And they seem to derive from the mob game of the villages. And what, why, why did you get these games? Normally, they'd be held on, on, say, Shrove Tuesday or some other feast day that two villages or two halves of the same village would play a game which would involve trying to get a, a, a pig's bladder or a sack of hay or, or whatever your, your ball happens to be from one end to the other. And there's various theories as to why that uh, should have grown up. One of the most interesting of which, which... I I mean, it, it seems plausible, but obviously there's no way of knowing, is that this is some sort of vestige of a fertility rate. And so because of the, the goals, as it were, in these early games are often holes in the ground, the placing of a, of a spherical object in the hole represents the fertilisation of the earth by the sun, which is then this great irony that why do the public schools, 
I'm skeptical. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I'm skeptical, but it's. I'm it's sure a great, James Fraser, a great theory, though, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sure James Fraser would have would have believed this, because um, you know, for James Fraser, everything was a fertility rate. But then you have this this beautiful irony that that in the public schools, what what drives sport? Why is sport so so important? Why is it so central to the curriculum? And it, it's muscular Christianity. It's this idea yeah. that you want to you want to toughen boys up for running the empire, but also this terrible fear of of what they they call solipsism, i.e. masturbation. That if you leave a boy alone, you know, he's going to partake of this debilitating act. So what you need is him to be running about on a field with loads of other boys performing a fertility rite. Well, before Tom gets in, I want to get in and ask the question <laughs> that he, had, he, undou- yes, he undoubtedly will ask if I, don't, if I leave him unchecked about muscular Christianity. So a lot of the, well, certainly a, a large number of this sort of original clubs were founded by churches, weren't they? So Christianity was always, was it because of social control, would you say, and uh, trying to sort of domesticate the surging passions of the growing industrial cities? Do you think that's part of it? There may have been some of that. Um, I think also uh, there was a recognition that sport was healthy, healthier than drinking, for instance. So, And you see this in various forms in various countries. So, for instance... One of the earliest clubs in Russia is founded by um, the the Charnak brothers who are from Blackburn. They ran the Morozov mills, these textile mills in uh, just outside Moscow. And um, they set up a football club because if they didn't, their workers spent Saturday afternoons just knocking back the vodka. And they recognised <laughs> that playing football was, was better for them than, than that. So I, th- I think there's sort of a sense that um, you know, football is a, is a you know, sport is a good in and of itself. And, and what what I think is then fascinating is that you know, this is a an idea propagated by muscular Christianity through the nineteenth century. But then between the wars in Central Europe, is propagated by muscular Judaism. Oh right. And so yeah. you you have, for instance, uh, Hakoach, uh, who were the uh, say that again. <laughs> Hakoach, <laughs> you're the oh, specifically um, uh, Zionist club of Vienna. And they they win the Austrian League in 1925, but they are there to promote muscular Judaism and to raise funds for for Zionism. And just going back to what you, Jonathan, what you were saying about um, industrialists uh, spreading football to to Russia, the 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 twelve founding clubs you uh, of of um, of the football league are basically Lancashire and Midl- and Midlands clubs, so very much the kind of the beating heart of the industrial revolution. And you think about the, you know, the nickname for, for, for clubs, the Gunners and Hammers and so on. I mean, these are in, industrial names. Is, 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 is football as it emerges in Britain? We talked about the public school tradition, but it, but is really, I mean, the kind of the bedrock is, is that it's an industrial sport. It's a sport for, for, for in, industrial workers, industrial towns. Would that be fair? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, you, you see certainly the early, the, the the towns that have clubs that are successful early are all the big industrial towns and cities of the of the Midlands and North. Uh, I mean, we don't have a London champion till nineteen thirty one, uh, so the league begins in eighteen eighty eight, um, and I think that's significant that you, you you sort of see this is a pattern that's repeated across the world that in in totalitarian states success is always focused on the capital. Uh, in most other uh, in most democratic developed countries. 
it's the big industrial towns and it's only later when capital becomes much more focused on the capital. So you see in Italy, for instance, the Turin and Milan are the two successful cities. Rome is is not successful at all by comparison. Um but but yeah, you, you see that pattern repeated that that it's the the, the provincial cities, and I, I don't know whether that's because there's something uh, specific about industry. I mean, obviously, one of the key things in the growth of football as a spectator sport is the Factory Act, which gives workers a the Saturday afternoon off. So what are they going to do? Give them football to go and watch, um, or, or whether it's a sense that provincial cities need to express their identity need you know, the football clubs become an expression of local pride and so there's investment in the club and it's probably a you know a, a mix of those those two factors that's true of someone like bill bow isn't it i mean you know these these places that define themselves in opposition to the to the sort of so to the, the center the, yeah. yeah to the national metropole I mean, Bill Bill Bow is a, is a very specific case. I mean, Athletic are one of only three clubs in Spain never to have been relegated, which, given their their budget, is incredible. Um, but obviously, they take on a whole a huge amount of, um, of of a weight of 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 Basque nationalism. It's it's uh, yeah, the, the Athletic in Bilbao is a is a very particular particular case. And obviously, Barcelona's taken on the idea of Catalan nationalhood as well. So now that we've moved abroad, let's talk about the export of football. So football presumably um, follows the empire. It follows, what, the merchant ships? No, no, I don't think that's true, actually, because if you look at the big imperial, you know, the, the big colonies, you know, Australia, Canada, India. Okay, could, could I, uh, Jonathan, I've got a question for you from um, a, a Spurs fan called Simon Sharma, who I gather has also may have written the old history book too. He dabbles, um, doesn't he? He dabbles in history. He dabbles, <laughs> but his main focus is is uh, is football. Um, and he asks, why didn't football take off as the sport of the nineteenth century British Empire while cricket did? I, I, I the honest answer is I don't know, but I, I wonder if it's something to do with class because where football is exported successfully is um, in what I guess you could call the informal empire. Somewhere like, I mean, Argentina, for instance, is, is the great example that um, although it was never part of the empire, there was clearly enormous British influence there that Britain ran the meat industry and the processing plants um, and, and the, the money supply, the banking system. I mean, the French seemed to have controlled the docks, uh, but Britain clearly had an enormous political and economic influence over Argentina. And you know, the, 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 the English influence or the British influence there, or it's, a, it's a Scottish influence really, um, is, is enormous. And that's because of the schools that are founded. It's because of companies working the, the, in the, the sort of rapid, uh, rapidly industrialising Buenos Aires. So I, I think um, one of the six teams who, I don't think in the first year, but I think, I think it's the second or the third year near the Argentinian League, which is founded early 1890s, one of the teams is a Scottish plumbing con- company who were there to put in the sewage works. Um, so it's, it's very much a, a, a organised football is very British there, but it, it rapidly takes off. And what you then have is uh, in 1913, you have the first Argentinian Argentinian champion. So you'd had Anglo champions all the way through. 1913, Racing Club wins the title. And this is... I mean, it's absolutely the right moment symbolically because this is the moment at which Britain begins to retreat from Argentina and, and right. the, you know, with, yeah, the coming of the First World War and, and, and Argentina sort of takes control of its own affairs. And you have around that time this, this huge discussion in Argentina of Caesar Argentina, what is it to be Argentinian? So Leopoldo Lagunes, one of the great poets of 
the early 20th century in Argentina, gives a series of lectures in, in 1912 on exactly the subject, Chaos Argentinidad. And the reason why this is fascinating from a football point of view is that one of the very few things that, 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 that unifies this, this great disparate nation, you know, very, you know, new nation, uh, the indigenous populations essentially wiped out in a series of genocidal wars in the late 19th century. And the beginning of the First World War, you look at the the, the, the makeup of Argentina and it's a million Spaniards, 800,000 Italians, 400,000 Northern European Jews, 400,000 Arabs, 40,000 Germans, 30,000 French, 30,000 British and Irish, all from very different places, very different ideas of what life should be. But what they all agree on is that when the team in the blue and white stripes plays a football match against Chile or Uruguay or Brazil, they want them to win. And, and presumably also uh, hovering in the back is um, a, a way of asserting independent cultural independence from England. Well, no, not even in the background. I mean, absolutely in the foreground. I and mean, this, is, this is, again, this is what a lot of talk about national styles of football, I think, can be a little bit tenuous. Uh, with Argentina, it is absolutely central. So to begin with, football is a, is a British import. And so Racing winning the title is a huge moment for Argentina saying, okay, we had our independence in, from Spain in 1816, but this is some kind of new independence. Um, and then this question of Chaos Argentinidad is is problematic because uh, Lugones locates it in, in the gaucho, yeah, the, the, the cowboy who's controlling the great herds of cattle ac- across the pampas. And you can see why that's attractive. The, 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 the gaucho is this very romantic figure. He, you know, he has this great virtuosity, but he's solitary, he's brave, he's battling the elements. Um, but the problem is the gaucho culture is is dead by 1912 and the British have killed it. The British import wire. And as soon as you have wire fences, you don't need a gaucho. So the political clout of a gaucho in the early to mid-19th century is destroyed by a man called Henry Newton who brings in wire. And then when you get barbed wire 20 or 30 years later, that's obviously even better for keeping your cows in the right place. Um, so the, you know, the great epic of, of Argentinian literature is, is Martin Fierro, which is published in two volumes in the 1870s. And that's about uh it's it's really right at the end of a gaucho period and it, it's I, I i mean i think it's quite an ambivalent work about gaucho culture but of course people don't actually read it they just like the idea of a gaucho so you find in the you know late you know, late 19 teens and early 1920s you get gaucho clubs in buenos aires where people dress in their idea of what a gaucho would look like and they go to these huge asados the huge barbecues and yeah the asados grilling meat is still an enormous part of of argentinian social life um, and you get people like, like Borges and Adolfo Boycasares who sort of openly laugh at this. Saying, this you know, a gaucho wouldn't have dressed like this. You're dressed as Rudolf Valentino. You're not dressed as a gaucho. <laughs> um, and they, they, there's a recognition this is vaguely preposterous in, a, in an increasingly urban society, that the gaucho has, has no place. So where, where can you find that spirit of a gaucho? And it's found in the pibe, in the urchin of the street. And... Uh, you get a series of, of articles in El Gráfico, a hugely successful, influential football magazine, a sports magazine, through the 1920s, pointing out that the PBA and the way the PBA plays football, that that uh, is somehow representative of the soul of Argentina. And this is clearly in opposition to to Britain, because the British fo- you know, football, as as is propagated by the British in Argentina, was through the schools. It's on these great grassy playing fields. It's about running and about strength. You have a teacher there with a whistle if things get out of hand to control things. The P-Bay playing on the Potrero, on, on, the, on the vacant lot of the, the growing city, he's playing on this hard, uneven surface 
it's maybe 20, 30 aside on a tiny pitch. You've got to be able to control the ball. You've got to have technical virtuosity. Uh, you've got to be able to look after yourself. You've got to have this streetwise character. There's no teacher there with a whistle to, to, to stop things when they get out of hand. You've got to be able to look after yourself. You've got to have sharp elbows. And so the P-Bay becomes this... this um, uh, the, the, the new gaucho. It's a, it's a gaucho, gaucho in an urban environment. It's the representation. This is, this of, is Maradona, right? I mean, this and is. Then, then you get in 1928, you get the, the famous editorial by Bocotto, who, like most Argentinians, actually, most great Argentinians, actually Uruguayan, the, the editor of El Grafico. And he, he, he writes this piece saying, if you erect a statue to the, to the spirit of, of Argentinian football, it's the P-Bay with his mane of untamed black hair, his teeth <laughs> worn down by eating yesterday's bread, his vest eaten away by the mice of care. And, and you know, he, he with a, a picaresque smile on his face, a twinkle in his eye. And if you gave somebody that description, said, who is this? 100% of people would say it's Diego Maradona. And this is 49 years before Maradona makes his international debut. And that's why Maradona comes with this, you know, he comes with the force of prophecy. Um, you know, he, 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 full, you know, he he is, yeah. He is Christ answering Ezekiel's call. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's time for the ref- I hear the referee's whistle. Let's ha- let's have a break and we'll come back and change ends and uh, see what the second half brings. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, don't we? But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited. How would you use it? Well, Dominic, you'll know that uh, my great love is cricket and cricket is a sport that notoriously takes up a lot of time. So imagine if I had even more time, just how brilliant I would be. And I've worked out that the best way to squeeze things into your schedule is to know what's really important to you so that you can make it a priority. Well, Tom, therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you'll know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfil you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash rest is history. Well, it's a podcast of two halves. Uh, welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking to football writer and historian Jonathan Wilson. Um, let's pivot to the modern game and its place as a global sport. We've got a question here from Bruno Leiter. Can we say the world is culturally appropriating our culture when football is played? Brackets, joking. Um, is football our greatest gift to the world? Brackets, not joking. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to think of any greater tool of... British soft power. Um, it, you know, it's hard to think of any British invention that's been taken on by so many different countries and so many different cultures. And of course, the the, the Premier League is by a long way the most successful league in the world you know, in terms of viewership and view in terms of TV rights. Um, you know, it, it, it's. But is it really an English league anymore? A lot of the a lot of the players aren't British. A lot of the managers aren't British. 
a lot of the, the club owners aren't British and a lot of the viewers aren't British. And, and that actually presents us with, a, with quite a difficult um, tension as to what is a football club. Because you know, I, you know, I grew up in Sunderland, I'm a Sunderland fan. Um, Sunderland is uh, an expression of my relationship with a home I left 23 years ago. Um, you know, my relationship with, with my dad was almost entirely uh, conducted through through football. It was, it was the one thing we did together was to go and watch football. You know, why do I go back to the Northeast now? It's to see mates and go and watch football. And if a football wasn't there, I probably wouldn't go and see those mates. So it's a for me, and I suspect many other people who, who grew up in, in provincial northern towns in in, in England or, or Britain, um, football is is a way of processing our relationship with our homes. It's a it's a very profound part of our identity. And um, worse on than ever to win anything. And as we record this, we're two days from a from a major cup final, which isn't just some tin pot little thing. It's only for the small teams. It's, it's one of those paint matters. trophies or something. What is it's, it? It's, it's the checker I mean, trade. I, I can't believe you demean the Papa John's trophy like that. <laughs> um, Papa John's trophy. <laughs> um, but and and so part of me wants to say, yeah, football is for the community that's grown up around the club, and and uh, you know a lot of clubs do a lot of great social work in, in their own communities. But at the same time, can I really turn around to the kid in Bangalore who has grown up from the age of five or six, um, uh, you're going to bed late at night to watch his beloved Manchester United and he saves up a little bit every week and eventually when he's 30, he can afford his trip to go to Old Trafford to watch Manchester United won, Burnley won. <laughs> can I can I really say that that his right to support United or his 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 sense of affiliation is any less than mine? And I don't really think you can say that. I think this raises so many interesting questions, but one well, I just it, want to get in it's on. A, it's, the, it's the nub of the issue of globalisation, right? It is. But one on the chronology, though. I mean, we all grew up at the same time, roughly, sort of 70s, early 80s, at a point when English football was widely thought to be dying. And actually having written about 70s, 80s Britain, you know, writing the story, it, it often surprises me that it that it didn't because attendances were in free fall. The game was associated overwhelmingly in the public mind, not just in Britain, but around the world with hooliganism. You know, England disgraced themselves at tournament after tournament with their hooligan behaviour. English fans disgraced themselves again and again. We're banned from Europe in 1985. And at that point, I mean, if you were a betting man, you would say this is a dead sport. It's a Victorian sport, born in industry, in the world of the church, in muscular Christianity, all of which have gone. Why will it endure? And actually, the question is, why did it endure? Why didn't it die? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. And it's it seems to me incredible that my mum let me go and watch football. Um, because yeah. there's, a, there's the three major disasters uh, of you know, the Bradford fire, uh, which kills 56 people um, in 1985. Then uh, Heisel, which is um, Liverpool versus Juventus in the European Cup final, uh, hooliganism leading to a wall collapsing, killing 30, 38 Juventus fans. Uh, and then you have Hillsborough in 89, um, you know, the terrible crush in 90. Uh, 96 killed at, at an FA Cup semi-final, um, which was to do with um, uh, you know, crowd safety issues and the design of the stadium and, and policing rather than hooliganism per se. Although, of course, if it hadn't been hooliganism, there wouldn't have been fences at the front of the, of the stand. 
Um, so yeah, the idea that and some of the some of the things I saw as a kid going to football. I mean, I remember quite clearly being I don't know, must have been fifteen or sixteen, being in a game at Birmingham, and seeing somebody. I I, I wouldn't say he was a mate, but I, I knew him. Uh, we were in the car driving away from the game. Just saw him getting getting punched in the face, and his jaw was broken. And you saw him go down. And you sort of think, like, should we stop and help? And then he's like, no, we can't. I remember being at Derby once, stopped at traffic lights, and people kicking in the side of the car. And you, you went back every week, and I've got no idea why we did that. It seems bizarre <laughs> that we did it. And you're right, the stadiums were, were crumbling. There's a smell of urine about everything. Um, there was that sense of hostility the whole time. And then that begins to change um, early 90s that uh, you have a Taylor report, which um, uh, mandates all-seater stadiums for top-flight clubs, uh, which, which clearly does a lot to... Um, uh, to make ground safer, it makes crowd control a lot easier. It makes the environment a lot more comfortable. It begins to attract different people. Uh, it led to a rise in prices, which I mean, Lord, Lord Justice Taylor specifically says there is no reason for rising prices, but prices double in, in sort of over the course of three or four years, which again clearly affects the makeup of, of who's going. Uh, you also have Italia ninety, which, uh, from an English point of view, I think has a huge effect on on how we viewed football and somehow... Because it becomes associated with opera rather than with <laughs> hooliganism. Well, yeah, and things, moments, like, you know, it's a, it's a great moment of national unity um, of everybody mm. you're watching a, a team, actually an England team actually playing well in a major tournament, which was the you know, first time it happened in my, in my lifetime. And also Gaza's tears. And, you, you know, um, the sense that masculinity didn't have to be aggressive. It could be this softer side to it. But also, um, but also that it that it is in Italy, and you have got Pavarotti, and it suddenly comes to be associated with rather desirable middle class Mediterranean holidays, rather than with kind of, I don't know, kind of rainy subways in Wolves or whatever. <laughs> uh, what I is mean, this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds like that was your experience of it, Tom, and and, and I, I'm sure that that was what, what people thought. I mean, but in the nineties, it becomes a middle class sport as well as a working class sport. Is, is is that the cliche or is that not true? Because I think middle class people had always liked football, but they hadn't gone. Yeah, I think they'd watched it on TV. So when TV, there is an argument among football historians that what happens when TV comes in is TV actually. Um, sort of nationalises football and middle-class people who wouldn't have gone to games and now watch. So at my prep school, which was basically a Victorian school preserved in Aspic in, in 1980s England, every boy had a team, collected football stickers, watched on TV, but virtually none went to games and they were all pretty sort of middle-class West Midlands children. So I think already it, there was a middle-class element, but what maybe... Um, Jonathan would agree that what changed in the 90s was that they actually started to go to the games. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot had already gone to the games. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I was middle class of some denomination and I, and I went, my dad had always gone, his dad had always gone. Um, I mean, there's a story my, my dad used to tell. Sunderland played Manchester United in 1964 in an FA Cup uh, replay and it, uh, the official attendance was 64,000, but a gate collapsed and... and God knows how many got in. But my dad worked um, sort of, a, I don't know, a mile from... He, his, his mother lived very close to the... Like 200 yards from Roker Park. And he worked about a mile away. So he, he would walk home at night. He'd go and have his tea. And he, he'd go to the stadium. And because there were so many people there this night, he couldn't get home. And so he went to the ground in his suit carrying a briefcase. And 
his story was always he saw all these other blokes in suits carrying their briefcases because they'd all found exactly the same problem. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I think, I, I don't know if figures actually exist for this, but I, I think it's it's far too easy to suggest that 80s purely working class sport, 90s purely middle class sport. Okay. But certainly the proportion changes. And you also get things like uh, All Played Out, Fever Pitch, Football Against the Enemy, these three canonical works of football literature, which persuade publishers, for instance, that football is something that the reading classes want to read about. I think football coverage in the newspapers changes. Um, I think what you see as a decade goes on... So you get kind of... uh, Oxford graduates writing about it, and yeah, you get posh bankers like me writing about it. Yeah, <laughs> people like yeah, people like you. And, 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 but this is actually quite a serious kind of shift. That and, and I, I came slightly too late for this, but within the press box, there were a lot of tensions around the turn of the millennium between the old school who had not gone to university and the new university-educated football writers. And one of the reasons that um, you suddenly get this wave of university-educated football writers is that football ranking is suddenly seen as a desirable profession in a way it never would have been in the 80s or early 90s. And you have Sky and, and the Premier League as well. That's the other factor. But yeah, come on. But could I, could I also ask about the structure of employment and the gradual impact of of capital, which is the kind of Marxist perspective that I know Dominic will be keen to <laughs> I love forward. that kind of stuff. Love it. Um, he would have the, been in the early 90s. The, 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 basically, basically, I mean, football in England for most of the 20th century is based on a kind of apprentice system, isn't it? It's, you know, you get Bobby Moore turning up at when he's 15 and cleaning out the toilets and things. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, Billy Wright hanging out with his landlady, even when he's captain of England. And the, the, the amount of money that footballers are earning is, is, is it, it's minuscule compared to, to what they then go on to earn. What is it that change? How is it that that footballers go from from basically earning the amount of money that that, that a, a skilled manual worker would be earning in the fifties and sixties to to kind of being stratospheric earners now? What, what what's that? What's the process that in it that facilitates that? Well, you had a maximum wage until nineteen sixty one, which was twenty pounds a week during the season, eighteen pounds a week out of the season, uh, and that was flat across the board. So you might have played a hundred times for England, or you might be a talented seventeen year old. And you would get 20 quid a week. And obviously some people earned less than that. Um, and then a, a series of court cases um, and, and that maximum wage is lifted. Famously, Johnny Haynes immediately goes to £100 a week at Fulham, uh, which is largely publicity stunt by Tommy Trinder, sort of great musical impresario who, who ran Fulham. Um, but even then, you know, it wasn't, you didn't get huge wages. So Manchester United and Liverpool uh, you had Matt Busby and Bill Shankly, the two managers, and, and Shankly certainly promoted this this sort of um, you know, football is this great socialist ideal, and and yet they they stitched it up so nobody earned more than thirty five quid a week if you played Manchester United or Liverpool. So I mean, Shankly was just as exploitative when he had the the need to be as, as anybody else. Uh, I mean, football is beyond anything else a game of profound hypocrisy and always has been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you also then have what was called the retain and transfer system where a club would hold your license to play. So even if you um, even if you want to leave, even if you were refusing to play, they could stop you signing for another league club. Uh, and that only ended uh, what beginning of the 80s. Um, and then you have the Bosman so- ruling comes in in, in uh, what, 96, which means anybody's out of contract is entitled to a free transfer rather than a fee being set by a tribunal. And that gives players much more power to determine their own futures. So it's a kind of liberalising, liberalising of, of, of trade structures. It's, it's Thatcherism. 
It is. I think what's really striking, Tom, is how how late um, it, how, how late footballers move to genuinely wealthy levels. So if you read accounts of footballers in the seventies and eighties, the sort of Kevin Keegan's and Trevor Brookings. I mean, they would give interviews to football magazines and they would show you inside their lovely home and they'd show off their new lawnmower and their kind of, you know, their um, their Austin Allegro or whatever. And their lives were really not so different from, you know, a reasonably prosperous kind of middle class you know, middle manager. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, you look at Bobby Charlton. Bobby Charlton, I think, is one of the more sensible footballers. And when he you know, when he decided he was going to become a footballer, so age fifteen, he leaves Ashington to go to, to Manchester United. And there's a, an uncle of his ran a grocer's, a greengrocer's, and he said to him, "You, how much do I need to set up a greengrocer's?" And this uncle says oh, about two thousand pounds. And so Bobby Charlton thinks, right, twenty year career, I'll save a hundred pounds a year, and then buy greengrocer's when I'm finished. <laughs> well, that was a classic thing, wasn't it? Run yeah. a sports shop, run a pub. Um, I mean, I remember in the late 90s, so at a point where football is starting to earn about, what, £20,000 a week, perhaps something like that, talking to a, um American historian friend of mine about this. And, and I did the sort of stock thing that people did, which is to say, it's terrible, they earn so much, you know, um, the sort of performative outrage, if you like. And he said, what I can't understand as an American is how they earn so little. There is so much money in this game, and compared with U.S. sports stars, why on earth has it taken so long for them to realise their bargaining power? Well, and the, and the question I always ask when somebody kind of complains about how much footballers earn is, where do you think the money in the game should go? Is it is yeah. it better if it goes to the, the the Sheikh in Abu Dhabi or the hedge fund manager in New York? But that's one of the interesting things about the globalised football, isn't it? That the club itself often makes remarkably little money and basically <laughs> acts as a middleman to take money from TV companies and give it to footballers and their agents. So you don't go in, you don't invest in a football club if you want to be rich because basically well, you're handing a lot of money well, to your... Well, you, you didn't. Um, I mean, I think since financial fair play regulations have come in over the last decade or so, I think now you, you can get rich. Only, only a top successful football club. And the, the negotiations are going on now about the restructuring of the Champions League, I think will increase that. But that's only the very, very top, right? The very, the, very the, top, the... yeah, yeah. And, well, and, and people who invest in football clubs now... When they invest in them lower down, the idea is to uh, to get them up a division, to, to essentially spin them and sell, send, sell them on. And a lot yeah. of the takeovers are leveraged, so you're not actually investing very much of your own money. You're taking a debt that's um, got got the the, the 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 club as a guarantee. Do Do you think that the um, the kind of hostility to the the money that star footballers earn is a kind of vestige of expression of of class hostility? I mean, you, people don't complain about actors. You know, Hollywood stars getting that amount of money? Uh, I, yeah. I mean, I, look, I think there's there's two things there. One is it kind of is disgusting that Meza Ozil was earning, you know, 17 times in a week what a nurse would earn in a year. There, there's something wrong about that in a, in a sort of, in a wider sense. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I think there's a there's a class and probably a race-based thing that, that there is something still that, that offends people about the idea of a, yeah, a young black kid from Lewisham making twenty million pounds a year. And what about um, uh, the future? So football is becoming incre- I mean, it's it's incredibly popular worldwide, but it's becoming increasingly stratified, less competitive, arguably. Is there a scenario? I mean, this will be anathema to you, but 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 there must be some kind of scenario at some point where football dies. I mean, everything dies in history. You know, nothing, people don't do chariot racing anymore. So at what point, how do you see it dwindling? I mean, let's say after we're all gone, 
what would be the sort of the, the process by which football would would fall from grace? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting, you know, in, especially uh, in the context of these negotiations, which which are happening at the moment about how the Champions League may be restructured. Uh, which essentially the rich clubs are trying to stitch it up so they get even more money and so they're insulated from the possibility of failure. Uh, but um, uh, Agnelli, the, the the chairman of Juventus, the, the, the biggest, most successful Italian club, uh, he has suggested that, that football is is not getting take-up among 18 to 24-year-olds. And he, I mean, he, he's a—he's clearly a clown. Let, let, let's let's not be about the bush about this. Uh, and Yelly is not a man whose view I would I would necessarily trust. But it's interesting. He's raised this issue, and he's suggesting modern attention spans mean that people uh, are not going to be prepared to sit down and watch a ninety-minute game. Um, not good so news one for of, Test cricket. <laughs> one, yeah, well, quite. And one of his ideas is you sell uh, subscription packages. So you, you only watch the last fifteen minutes of games, which what? clearly is is ludicrous. That, that's that's like watching the last act of a play or something. That's completely yeah, I, demented. I, I, you know, his his argument, his his analogy is, uh, you know, if you're watching a golf tournament, the only action takes place over the last six holes. And you're sort of like, <laughs> yeah, but if 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 one player is already ten shots clear. That's actually the bit you want to see. And equally, if you turn on a game and, and Liverpool are already beating Burnley 5-0... I don't know, sorry, I keep picking on Burnley. I apologise. Um, um, our, our producer is a Burnley fan. We should, we I should, didn't know uh, that. You're going to get cut off, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> um, why would you watch the last 15 minutes? Of that? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. But I, I think the wider point that are younger people still watching football, you know, there's definitely an issue in terms of going to the game. I mean, I remember years ago... It must be 15 years ago now, talking to a director at Manchester City. So this is before the, the Abu Dhabi takeover. And him saying um, his great fear was he, he'd looked at the average age of season ticket holders at Manchester City and in the previous decade it had gone up by eight and a half years. So it was the same people buying the tickets and kids weren't coming in. Because one of the reasons for that is it's really expensive. That when mm. I started going, it was yeah, it was two quid or £2.50 for an under-16 to get in. And you were under-16 until you were 21 in those days. <laughs> Um, unless you were particularly unlucky with your your development of facial hair or whatever, um, but you know, how, how if you if you were a parent if you were you know if you, if you were a father with your your three kids wanting to go to a game now you're talking about 150 quid to take them to a Premier League game. Jonathan, yeah. could, I, I I think the uh, we're almost into injury time, um, but could, just just on on a slightly sunnier note, um, that of course there is a massive growth area in football, which is women's football. Um, and I, I, I did a, a kind of radio show, oddly, about this and about the... Um, you know nothing about way either, in which... either of those things, football or, or women. <laughs> <laughs> the Dick Kerr ladies, Jonathan. The Dick Dick's, Kerr ladies. Dick's one of, Kerr ladies. Dick's, Dick's Kerr ladies. Um, and uh, what was it? Lily Parr, mm-hmm. um, the chain-smoking, toothless striker who could break a man's leg with a, a penalty kick. And they, they were massive, weren't they, over the, during the First World War and after because there wasn't any other football and then it got kind of crushed and evil industrialist men stopped the women from playing but now that is coming back so that is a, a, a huge growth area it should be a growth area yeah so yeah you're right the 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 the, the normal league the, the the men's league the professional league which had been ongoing since 1888 is abandoned uh, in 1915 and you then get a series of regional games happen but also women's football really takes off and and the Dick's Curl ladies would would get you know, crowds of tens of thousands. Uh, then 1921, 
the FA decides to to outlaw all women's football played on grounds belonging to clubs affiliated to the FA. So eventually, effectively, it it kills it at a stroke. Now, why they did that, I think, has never quite been adequately explained. I think partly it was some kind of moral panic. There was something somehow unseemly about women playing sport, and it wasn't just football that women had. Um, uh, where women's sport was was sort of a, a long way behind. You know, there's very, you know the the Robert Coles book you you refer to talks about how there's very little record of women playing sports in the 19th century. Though I think there yeah. were some England Scotland football internationals in 1881 1882, um, but it, yeah, it's clearly lagging a long way behind. There's some sort of sense that this wasn't quite right. This wasn't quite proper. But I think also the FA were driven by this fear that the the clubs, which obviously had terrible wars, have been getting no money coming in. A lot of players have been killed. Um, that, that they were going to lose fans to this this new new form of the sport, and I think they were acting to protect that. And that but, ban uh, is is not list, lifted until 1968, so disgracefully late. And the women's super league has only went fully professional uh, two years ago, three years ago. Right. Well, that's Jonathan. I'm blowing the whistle there. It's full time. Um, we've avoided the lottery of penalties. Can't thank you enough, Jonathan. Um, absolute podcasting technical masterclass there. <laughs> Um, we are releasing the rest of this history twice a week currently, so do keep an eye out for us on Mondays and Thursdays. Please send in your questions. We tweet the subject matters up for discussion about a week ahead. Just reply to either myself or Dominic with your question. Um, thanks so much for joining us. If you run now, you can avoid the traffic outside our metaphorical stadium. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.